Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. This is part one of a two-part case. On this episode of They Walk Among America, on May 12, 1985, the Fayetteville police in North Carolina received a phone call from a woman concerned about her neighbors. The caller told the operator that she had not seen the occupants of the property in the middle-class neighborhood of Summerhill Road for several days. She had been over to the house and knocked on their door, but no one answered. She could hear the muffled sounds of a baby crying from inside the home. Welcome to episode 27 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. The one-story, ranch-style brick home belonged to the Eastburn family. Gary Eastburn, an Air Force captain, and his wife Catherine lived at the house with their three young daughters, five-year-old Kara, three-year-old Erin, and 22-month-old Jana. Captain Eastburn had joined the Air Force in 1979, and the family had moved out to Fayetteville from Texas in 1983. The tree-lined subdivision of Summer Hill was quaint and quiet. It was situated a few miles from downtown Fayetteville, and just one mile south of Fort Bragg, which suited Captain Eastburn. He was the chief of air traffic control at Pope Air Force Base, now known as Pope Field. Captain Eastburn took his career very seriously, but always made sure to make time for his daughters. Weekends were spent at home, playing in the garden and enjoying a barbecue. The Eastburn family had lived on Summer Hill Road for around a year and a half. Much like their neighbours, many of whom were also military families, they took pride in the appearance of their property. In April 1985, Captain Eastburn had been required to attend an eight-week training course at Maxwell Air Force Base located in Montgomery, Alabama. After completing the course, the 36-year-old would graduate 
then report to RAF Watton in the United Kingdom, where he was to become a liaison officer. The family were looking forward to a big move overseas, in particular the young Eastburn children who were excited by the prospect of a new adventure. We were both ecstatic. We could hardly wait, Gary Eastburn later said. At home, his wife Catherine had been tying up some loose ends in preparation for the move. This included finding a home for their beloved dog, an English setter named Dixie. While the family wanted to bring Dixie along, they feared she would not survive the mandatory six-month quarantine. Catherine put an advertisement in the local newspaper, the beeline grab Brack, offering to give Dixie away for $10 to whoever could provide a good home. A man inquired about the dog before he collected Dixie. It would be many years until mobile phones and emails were widely used, so that evening Catherine wrote a letter to her husband, informing him that she had met a nice man who was going to provide a loving home for the family dog. Every week at the same time, Captain Eastburn would call home and speak to his wife. On May 9th, he rang as usual, but Catherine did not pick up, and the call went unanswered. It was very unusual. She always made sure to be at home to take the call. This did not sit right with Gary Eastburn. He was concerned, so he called the neighbours and came to learn that nobody had seen his wife or his girl since May 9th. Catherine had been to a neighbour's home to borrow some milk she said she needed for the girl's breakfast the next morning. Gary Eastburn made contact with the sheriff's department and asked if they could go over to the house to check on his wife and daughters. That night, an officer knocked on the door, but received no response. He left a note asking Catherine to call her husband in Alabama. By May 12th, Jeanette and Robert Seafelt, who lived next door to the Eastburns, noticed that they had not seen Catherine or her daughters, but they had heard Jana crying more than usual for the past two days. The family's car sat stationary on the drive, and the newspapers had not been taken in from the yard. Just before 1pm, Jeanette became so concerned that she went and knocked on the door, but there was no response. She walked to Jana's bedroom and could see the little girl standing in her crib, unattended and visibly distressed. Feeling uneasy, Jeanette called the police. Cumberland County Sheriff's Deputy William Toman quickly arrived at the scene. Deputy Toman anticipated responding to nothing more than a child neglect case or an overly concerned neighbour getting panicked when no one answered the front door. This could not have been further from the truth and nothing could have prepared him for what he would find inside the home. When Deputy Toman received no response after knocking on the front door and a couple of windows, 
he received permission from a supervisor to cut the screen and open a window. As he set foot inside the property, he immediately noticed a strong nauseating odour. He entered Jana's bedroom to find the toddler hungry and dehydrated, but otherwise she appeared to be okay. She was standing in her crib, arms raised out in front of her so that Deputy Toman could lift her up. It was evident that her diaper had not been changed in several days. She smelled of urine and seemed scared. Deputy Toman later recollected that child would have went to anybody. The officer lifted Jana out of the crib and carried her to the open window to hand the distressed child over to Jeanette Seafelt, along with a handful of diapers and a bottle he had found in the bedroom. Deputy Toman continued to explore the Eastburn home, looking in the other rooms, hunting for the source of the strong odour. He walked into the hallway, in the direction of the master bedroom. Before entering, the officer could see that a child was lying on the floor. It was Erin Eastburn. The little girl was on her back. She had likely gone into her parents' room to sleep, but someone had pulled her from the safety of her mother and father's bed and mercilessly ended the young child's life. The deputy summoned enough courage to continue examining the master bedroom. That is when he saw a hand protruding from the other side of the bed. As he slowly stepped into the room, he found the naked body of 31-year-old Catherine Eastburn. Her face was partially covered with a pillow. Her bra had been cut open, presumably with a knife, and her underwear was slashed open across the crotch and at the hip. The carpet was saturated with blood. There was also red staining on the bed linen near where Catherine's body was discovered. Deputy Toman backed out of the master bedroom, immediately radioing for assistance. He then continued to search the home. The officer entered the living room. There was potential evidence of a struggle. A basket of laundry knocked on the floor, and pages from a newspaper were scattered. But besides that, the room was by no means in disarray. As he turned towards the hallway, Deputy Toman spotted another bedroom. He could see a third body. It was Kara. She was lying on her bed. Star Wars blanket had been pulled up to her waist and a pillow was covering her head. Deputy Toman later told a reporter for the Herald Sun, I've become conditioned to handle cases involving adults, but not children. It's hard to believe any amount of training could prepare a person to deal with the brutal killing of young children and their mother. Forensic experts were called to the scene, but they cordoned off the home and began collecting evidence. In the master bedroom where Catherine and Erin Eastburn were found, the experts removed the blood-stained sheets. 
in the living room they made a small, unusual discovery. The tip of a surgical glove. Luminol was used to highlight blood inside the property. In the bathroom sink there was evidence that somebody had attempted to clean up after the frenzied murders. Presumably the killer had attempted to scrub the blood from their hands. Emergency medical workers came to the home to remove the bodies of the three deceased Eastburn family members. Emergency worker William Huggins would later report how he needed to hold three-year-old Erin's head carefully as he placed her into a body bag. Her injuries were so savage, only a small piece of skin kept her head attached to her neck. She had been stabbed five times to the front of the body, five times in the back. After the bodies were taken for a post-mortem, the medical examiner concluded that all of the victims had been stabbed to death. The attack on Catherine was also frenzied and excessive. The children's mother had sustained a total of 15 stab wounds, and her throat was slashed. There was also evidence that she had been raped prior to her death. Five-year-old Kara had also been stabbed in the chest ten times, and then her throat had also been cut. The mother and two of her daughters were killed with a single-edged knife, around two to four inches long and one inch wide at the hilt. The knife struck the heart and other organs of all three victims, and the slash wounds to their necks severed major blood vessels. Based on the last time Catherine Eastburn was seen, and a newspaper found inside the home, it was estimated that the victims had most likely been killed sometime late on May 9th, or in the early morning hours of May 10th. Captain Gary Eastburn received a phone call from a detective who urged him to get home as soon as possible. He knew from the detective's tone that something terrible had happened, but he had no idea how bad it was until he arrived home in Fayetteville. His world immediately came crashing down, and the sense of serenity and security in the neighbourhood was quickly replaced with fear and anxiety. With a ruthless killer on the loose, the families on the street felt as though any of them could have been targeted. The Eastburns were well-liked and had no known enemies. It seemed as though the murders were random. Perhaps the perpetrator just saw an opportunity. Mary Stram, who lived two doors down from the Eastburn family, said to the Charlotte Observer, We had a nice, friendly, quiet neighbourhood, but now I'm keeping my windows and doors locked and I'm not going to open my door to just anyone anymore. It was not just the community that were puzzled by the random nature of the murders. Speaking about the family, a police spokesperson remarked, They're real nice people, pleasant to be around. Why would anybody want to do this to her? There were no bad spots in her background. It's not like some guys we get in, on drugs or who hang around with shady characters. The Eastburns were a typical family, 
Gary and Catherine had met in the summer of 1974 in Kansas City, Missouri. Gary would later recall that it was love at first sight. He said, I can still remember seeing her in a white t-shirt and cutoffs and her hair in two ponytails. I just saw her and I thought, there she is. At that point, Gary Eastburn had just spent time in the Navy and was working as a shoe salesman. Catherine was back in Kansas City to visit her family while taking a break from her studies at Kansas State University. The pair fell in love and got married the following June before moving to Columbia so Gary Eastburn could attend the University of Missouri. Catherine worked as a dietitian while her husband studied. She could not wait to become a mother. In 1979, after graduating with a degree in agriculture, Gary Eastburn joined the Air Force. He was stationed in Wichita Falls, Texas, and it was here where Catherine gave birth to their first child, Kara. Erin was born two years later, and then Jana arrived just a few months before the young family moved again. Catherine had been worried about relocating to Fayetteville, but once they were there and settled in, she came to love it. Her husband excelled at his job as chief of air traffic control services at the nearby Air Force Base. Catherine was known to be a patient and loving mother to their three girls. Gary Eastburn's sister Tricia Higabotham said to the Kansas City Star, Catherine was great. The kids and her husband were her whole life. At the time of the murders, Kara was almost ready to finish kindergarten. She had recently started taking gymnastics lessons and she enjoyed being at school. Kara was headstrong and by all accounts was a daddy's girl. Erin was at that stage of her life where she idolised her big sister and copied everything Kara did. Erin was very happy-go-lucky and loved dancing. Her grandmother Jane Furnish had just given her a tutu and Erin would wear it for days on end. Summers for the Eastburn family were spent predominantly in Kansas City visiting family. Their horrific, untimely deaths left a hole in the lives of relatives and the wider community that could never be filled. Their funerals were held at St. Agnes Catholic Church in Shawnee Mission, Kansas. They were buried at the gravesite of Catherine's parents. Erin's gravestone describes her as a tiny dancer, while Kara's tombstone is inscribed with Daddy's Little Shadow. As for Catherine's, it poignantly reads, You are the sunshine of my life. A team of four detectives was assigned to the case. They requested the assistance of a seven-member investigative team from the State Bureau of Investigation. Gary Eastburn was immediately ruled out as a suspect. He had been miles away when the murders occurred. 
police learned about the man who had purchased the family dog Dixie from the letter Catherine had written to her husband. One witness, Alice Thorpe, who lived nearby, said that a military-type man with short blonde hair had stopped by her home on May 7th and asked if she was the one who had the dog for sale. She said she was not and he left. Another person, Patrick Cohn, told the police that he had seen a man matching that same description coming out of the Eastburn property in the early hours of May 10th. Cone lived in the same area and was walking back from his girlfriend's when he saw a man he described as tall, with light-coloured hair cut in a military style. The witness helped the investigators create a composite sketch of a man who had a moustache and was dressed in jeans and a members-only jacket. Cone explained that the person he saw had been carrying a bag over his shoulder and as the two men crossed paths, the man said, I'm getting an early start this morning. He then got into a white car parked around 200 yards from the Eastburn's home. Cone told the police that he had been concentrating on the man's features because Cone feared that this person might have been a burglar. A further witness came forward to say that she had seen a white Chevrolet Chevette parked down the street around the time it was suspected the murders occurred. The police issued an appeal to the man, asking him to come forward and hand himself in so that he could be ruled out of the inquiry. After the appeal aired on television, a blonde-haired man wearing fatigues turned up at the police station with his wife Angela and their 11-month-old baby, Christina. He identified himself as 27-year-old Sergeant Timothy Bailey Hennis. He was an active-duty soldier, assigned to E Company, 407th Supply and Service Battalion. Hennis confirmed that he had been the man to buy Dixie from Catherine Eastburn on May 7th. Over the course of the next few hours, Ennis spoke with police as his wife and daughter sat in the reception area. Ennis told police that he and his wife had seen Catherine's advertisement, seeking a new home for Dixie. He said he called the number provided, but Catherine was not home. He left his telephone number and his wife's name with a babysitter. Catherine later returned the phone call and invited Hennis over the night of May 7th. He described how he was welcomed into the Eastburn home, where he met Dixie and chatted with Catherine. Hennis said he decided that Dixie would make a nice addition to the family, so he paid Catherine $10 and left with a new dog in tow. According to Hennis, at around 8.45pm on May 9th, Catherine had called him up to inquire about the dog. He said he informed her that Dixie had settled in just fine. His wife and daughter were out of town for the weekend. It was just him and his new pet at home. Later that night, which was estimated to be when the murders took place, Timothy Hennis said he telephoned his wife. 
she was in Jacksonville with her parents. He also went to the store, got something to eat and then returned home and went to bed. He said that he woke up the next morning around 4am to report to physical training. There were no quarter logbooks at the time, so he did not log in that morning. After the interview, Timothy Hennis was allowed to leave, but not before providing fingerprints, hair and blood samples. While the police had been interviewing Timothy Hennis, the witnesses were called in to view a photographic lineup. Each witness positively identified Timothy Hennis as the man they had seen in the area. He also drove a white Chevrolet Chevette, the same car spotted when the murders occurred. Just six hours after his release, Hennis was arrested at his home without incident. He commented to one of the police officers, I hope you guys know what you're doing, before adding, Looks like I'm going to get to wear one of those little orange jumpsuits. Ennis was handcuffed and placed into the patrol vehicle before being transported to the Cumberland County Law Enforcement Centre. He was subsequently held without bond at the Cumberland County Jail. In announcing the arrest, Sheriff Otis Jones said, It was a very tragic thing. Out of the usual homicide case, we feel real good about the arrest. We have done our job. Timothy Hennis was charged with three counts of first-degree murder and one count of sexual assault. It was discovered that on May 10th, somebody had used Catherine's bank card at the Methodist College branch of BB&T. $150 had been lifted from the teller machine. The next morning, around 8.45am, Catherine's bank card was used once more at the same location. Investigators discovered that the person suspected of making the withdrawal made a $300 rent payment the following day. A woman who withdrew money from the ATM after the person who had used Catherine's bank card identified Timothy Hennis from a photo lineup. Timothy Hennis had joined the army in October 1980. Between 1981 and 1984, he was stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, before he transferred to Fort Rucker in Alabama and then back to Fort Bragg, where he joined the 600th Quartermaster Company. The day after his arrest, Ennis briefly appeared in court. He told District Court Judge Lucy Hare that he acknowledged the charges against him. Ennis said he understood that he could be facing the death penalty if he were convicted. Timothy Hennis was ordered to be held without bail. He retained the services of two Fayette lawyers to defend him, Gerald Beaver and Billy Richardson. With Hennis behind bars, the investigation into his potential involvement in the murders continued. Officers spoke with his neighbours. Five of them would tell police that they had seen Hennis burning something in a barrel behind his home a few days after the murders. 
The witnesses remarked that they had never seen their neighbour burning anything prior to this incident. Police would recover a 55-gallon barrel from Hennessy's backyard, as well as water and hair that was found in the property's sink traps. These items were all taken to the State Bureau of Investigation lab to be analysed. Towards the end of June, the evidence collected went before a grand jury. It was determined that there was enough evidence against Hennis to stand trial for the three murders. Hennis's defence team attempted to obtain bail for their client, arguing before Superior Court Judge D.B. Herring that there was no physical evidence to connect Hennis to the murders. Defence attorney Gerald Beaver explained that no blood had been found on Timothy Hennessy's jacket, shoes or in his car. Furthermore, none of Hennessy's blood, hair or fingerprints matched the samples found inside the Eastburn home. Attorney Beaver stated, You must balance this horrible crime against the minimal evidence of guilt and the need for the defendant to assist in his defence and support his family. Assistant District Attorney William Van Story rebuffed the request for bail. He handed Judge Herring gruesome photographs of the crime scene. He spoke of the need to consider the nature of the murders. Pictures are worth a thousand words, said the Assistant District Attorney. These are very vivid, somewhat emotionally inflammatory, but the nature of the offence charged... This is the best evidence of the case we have so far. Judge Herring initially denied the request for bail, but five months later another hearing was scheduled. This time the judge granted Hennis bail for $100,000. He was subsequently released and returned home to his family, where he was allowed to work in an administrative job at Fort Bragg. As the trial approached, the lead witness Patrick Cohn said during a preliminary hearing that he was not entirely sure whether Hennis was the man he had seen outside the Eastburn home in the early morning hours of May 10th. Hennis's defence team requested that Cohn be removed as a prosecution witness. They argued that the photographic lineup that the police had provided to Cone was so suggestive that it made mistaken identity a possibility. However, Superior Court Judge Lynn Johnson disagreed with this argument, and she concluded the police made no such suggestions to Patrick Cone. The judge also ruled that Cone could testify as a prosecution witness during the upcoming trial. Towards the end of May, jury selection began. The proceedings were unlike a regular trial because they were to be conducted under an unusual court order that set guidelines on public and media seating as well as behaviour. The order also forbade photographs from being taken in the courtroom or in private and public halls. The media frenzy surrounding the case had been extensive, and it was anticipated there was going to be a large crowd wanting to catch a glimpse of the accused. 
The prosecution had decided they would be seeking the death penalty against Timothy Hennis if he were convicted of the murders. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. By June 14, 1986, the jury consisting of seven men and five women was seated after two weeks of selection. An opening statements commenced. Assistant District Attorney William Van Story described the scene at the Eastburn home as a horror story. In fact, he said the scene inside the property would, quote, make the worst horror show ever shown on the silver screen pale by comparison. Assistant District Attorney Van Story went on to reveal that much of the case was built upon circumstantial evidence adding that although there was no forensic evidence found inside the home that could link Hennis to the murders, there was nothing that could rule him out. Defence attorney Billy Richardson explained to the jury how there had been an exhaustive investigation to try and link physical evidence to his client. This included fingerprints, sperm, hair and fibre testing, all of which came back as a negative against the suspect. At this time, forensic analysis of blood only went as far as the comparison of blood type. The Defence Counsel revealed that footprints were found inside the Eastburn home that had come from a man's shoe, size 9 or 10, though Timothy Hennis wore size 12. Keep in mind in this case that you cannot just look at certain circumstances and ignore the others, Defence Attorney Richardson said to the jury. Conrad Wrench of the City County Bureau of Identification would testify about the examination of the crime scene, detailing the bloody sheets and tip of a surgical glove that was found in the living room. 
Hair, blood, fingerprints and semen samples were recovered. But State Bureau of Investigation witnesses testified that none of these came back as a match to Timothy Hennis. SBI Special Agent John Wayne Benjor told the court that bloody fabric impressions on a fitted sheet and comforter found at the Eastburn home could have been made with a corduroy material discovered in the burn barrel in Hennessy's yard. The agent explained that he had compared the rib spacing of the charred corduroy with rib spacing on the bloody bed linen. However, he could not determine with certainty that it was a match. Special Agent Benjor's testimony was followed by SBI forensic serologist Brenda Jew, who told the jury that numerous shoe prints in blood were found at the crime scene. These prints were only visible when luminol was employed. When something is sprayed with luminol, it causes a blue-white glow to appear if blood is present. This is otherwise invisible to the naked eye. The majority of the bloody footprints were found in the master bedroom, but due to the fact they were often overlapping, it could not be determined what kind of shoe had made the prints. Ennis's defence team suggested that the footprints were much too small to have come from the defendant, but Assistant District Attorney Van Story rebuffed this and said that the impressions were insufficient to determine shoe size. The prosecution entered 26 colour photographs of the crime scene into evidence, including images of the victims' bodies. They also presented photographs of Catherine Eastburn and her daughters during their autopsies. The images were projected on a wall above Timothy Hennessy's head for the entire courtroom to observe. Hailed as the star witness, Patrick Cohn testified and told the jury that he would never have signed an affidavit for the defence if he knew what it contained. The document claimed that he was not sure whether he had seen Timothy Hennis outside the Eastburn home in the early morning hours after the murders. He said he simply thought the affidavit was a subpoena. He revealed that after picking Timothy Hennis's image out of the photographic lineup, Cohn had doubts about whether he had selected that man. However, he said by the time he had signed the affidavit, those doubts had been resolved. According to the witness, the only reason he had apprehension in the first place was he was being, quote, bothered by defence attorneys, and he felt pressured by his family. Cohn testified that he was confident that the man he had seen walking away from the Eastburn home that morning with a trash bag slung over his shoulder was in fact Timothy Hennis. Cohn also identified the car that the man climbed into as a white Chevrolet Chevette, the same vehicle that Hennis drove. Patrick Cohn's testimony was bolstered by his father, John, who told the jury that when his son arrived home on May 10th, he was told Patrick Cohn had seen a house where a guy broke in. John Cohn said that his son even pointed out the home to him as they drove to work that morning. Patrick Cohn's mother, sister, brother-in-law and two co-workers would testify to the same effect. 
Cohn told everybody he met on May 10th what he had seen outside the Eastburn home in those early morning hours. Furthermore, his sister Patrice Cohn also testified that she too had seen a white Chevrolet Chevette parked near the Eastburn property at around 11.30pm on May 9th. This was before the bodies of Catherine and the girls were discovered. In addition to Patrick Cohn and his sister, Sergeant Eddie Hollingsworth, who lived in the same neighbourhood as the Eastburn family, would testify during the trial. He identified Timothy Hennessy's white Chevrolet Chevette as being parked near the home on the night of the murders. It was around 11.40pm on May 9th, and Sergeant Hollingsworth was returning home from work when he spotted the white vehicle. Ennis was also linked to the BB&T bank where somebody had used Catherine Eastburn's bank card. According to Lucille Cook, she had been driving up to the bank just three minutes after Catherine's bank card was used, when she saw a tall, blonde man. At first, Cook had told police she did not recollect seeing anybody that morning at the bank, but a month before the trial, Cook picked Hennis out of a photographic lineup and said she had seen him outside. She would, however, admit that she could not be sure if she recognised Hennis from the bank or from his photographs in newspapers. After all eyewitness testimony was presented, the prosecution rested their case. It was now time for the defence to present theirs, but first they filed a motion to dismiss the murder charges. It was argued that the prosecution had failed to place Timothy Hennis inside the Eastburn home when the murders occurred. However, the motion was denied. When the defence began their argument, they first called on David Guthrie, who testified that he had been with Hennis on duty at Fort Bragg when Catherine's bank card was first used. Guthrie said that he was in the quarterly room of Hennessy's unit at around 11pm on May 10th. Catherine's bank card was used at 10.54pm. The same bank card was used the next morning at 8.56am. Manuel Fonseca Riviera testified that Hennis had remained at the unit until around 8.45am. Louise Robbins, an anthropology professor, would also be called as a witness for the defence. She examined the shoe prints found at the crime scene and determined they were 9 to 10 inches long and had come from a size 8 to 9 shoe. Robbins then measured Hennessy's foot and shoe and found they were 11 and 12 inches respectively. It was argued the prints did not match the defendant. After all of the evidence was presented, it was time for closing arguments. Assistant District Attorney William Van Story pointed towards Hennis and said, There's your baby killer. Van Story told the court that Hennis could not account for his whereabouts on the night the murders took place. His wife was out of town. Defence attorney Beaver argued in closing that the state had not proved beyond a reasonable doubt 
that Timothy Hennis had killed Catherine, Kara, and Erin Eastburn. Beaver told jurors, Mr. Van's story is asking a lot of you. He is asking you to kill Timothy Hennis or take his life away for the next 80 years on the basis of a man who can't get his story straight. Of a woman who can't possibly identify him and tells police she didn't see anything out there and then comes in 10 months later. On the basis of a wife being thrown out of town and on the basis of burning something in a barrel. The crux of the case hinged on whether the jury believed that the eyewitness testimony was compelling enough to convict Hennis of murder. After deliberating, the jury returned with their verdicts. They found Sergeant Timothy Hennis guilty of the murders of Catherine Carer and Erin Eastburn. The same jury would now need to decide whether Timothy Hennish should be sentenced to life in prison or put to death. Assistant District Attorney Van Story urged the jury to send a, quote, thunderous message by sentencing Hennis to death. And they did just that. Before Judge Johnson imposed the death sentence, Hennis was given the opportunity to speak. He told the court, The only thing I can say, Your Honour, is that I'm not guilty, as I have always been. As he was led away, Timothy Hennis waved at his wife, Angela. Outside of court, Catherine's widower shared his relief with the verdicts. He said he felt anger and hatred towards Hennis, but had no urge to confront him. Captain Gary Eastburn remarked, It's like he stole the king's prize jewels. Irreplaceable objects. Maybe it's unchristian. I can never forgive him. Captain Eastburn's focus, he said, would be on Jana, his only surviving daughter. He did not want her to be poisoned by the overwhelming hatred he had in his heart for Timothy Hennis. Jana was all Gary Eastburn had left. He described his surviving daughter to the Charlotte Observer. Her character is a hybrid between Kara and Erin. Kara was smart and pretty independent, and Erin was a cute little dimple-cheeked love. Very affectionate. And Jana's got both of those traits. She's special. Everything we do. We do together. Under North Carolina law, the death sentence was appealed automatically, and in August 1986, the North Carolina Supreme Court stayed Timothy Hennis's execution pending the appeal. The appeal was filed in February 1988. Ennis and his defence team asked the North Carolina Supreme Court to throw out the convictions and grant Hennis a new trial. If those requests were denied, then they wanted a new sentencing hearing. As part of the appeal, the defence accused Judge Lynn Johnson of committing several errors during the trial and argued that the evidence against Hennis was insufficient. 
Judge Johnson was accused of erring when she refused to allow testimony about two knives found near the home of lead witness Patrick Cohn. It was also argued that the judge had allowed too many graphic photographs to be entered as evidence. Defence attorneys Gerald Beaver, Billy Richardson, Thomas Holt and Anne B. Peterson additionally listed 20 cases based on circumstantial evidence as strong or stronger than the case against Hennis, that were overturned on appellate review. In September of that same year, the defence team argued before the state Supreme Court. Defence attorney Beaver put forward the suggestion that the state's case against Hennis was intended to outrage the jury and make the lack of evidence seem insignificant. Evidence is not only what you hear from the witness stand, it's also what you see, Beaver said. William Farrell Jr., Special Deputy Attorney General, refuted this and said that the graphic photographs were necessary to illustrate certain aspects of the crime. Chief Justice James Exum Jr. noted that both the prosecution and the defence had agreed on the causes of death and questioned the relevance of the number of photographs that were entered into evidence. One photograph of each victim should have shown that, he said. Defence attorney Beaver then highlighted the lack of forensic evidence in the case, stating that blood, semen and hair samples were all found at the crime scene, but none of them came back as a match to Timothy Hennis and even suggested the presence of other people inside the home. By a vote of five to two, the Supreme Court would grant Timothy Hennis a new trial, citing the inflammatory photographs presented to the jury during the first trial. They wrote that the images had, quote, "...revealed in potent detail the severity of their wounds." made all the more gruesome by the visible protrusion of organs, caused by the process of decomposition. The decision was crushing to the Eastburn's relatives, who felt wholly disappointed. A second trial was ordered, and Superior Court Judge Giles Clark would rule that the second trial would be moved to Wilmington, due to the pre-trial publicity in Raleigh, Durham and Fayetteville. Timothy Hennessy's defence team attempted to get the death penalty taken off the table for the second trial, but Judge Clark would deny the request, meaning that if Hennessy were convicted a second time, he would be facing life in prison or death. The second trial began on March 13, 1989. It followed a similar format to the first, with the same witnesses testifying once more. The difference being only a small amount of photographs were presented to the jury. Once again, Patrick Cohn identified Timothy Hennis as the man he had seen leaving the Eastburn home in the early morning hours of May 10th. Is there any doubt in your mind that this is the man you saw that night? asked Assistant District Attorney John Dixon. No, sir, replied Cohn. The defence tried to cast doubt on Cohn's testimony, 
suggesting that the sky was overcast and clouds were low. Cohn was adamant that the man he had seen was Hennis, telling the jury, I know what I saw that night, and nothing can change that. Nothing can change my mind. While during the first trial, experts testified that the forensic evidence found inside the home did not match Hennis, SBI forensic serologist Brenda Dew told the court that she had conducted laboratory tests on vaginal smears from Catherine Eastburn and compared them with Hennis. Her findings could not link him or eliminate him. Dew testified that both Catherine and Hennis were secretors, which meant the tests of their bodily fluids would reveal their blood types. She told the court that she found sperm cells in the vaginal swabs, and the sample revealed the same blood type as Catherine. Dew stated, In our lab, unless we find a blood type different from the victim, we have no option to incriminate or eliminate a defendant. At the time, forensic science was in its infancy, and the only way a defendant could be linked to a crime was when their blood type was foreign to the victim's. The defence would also present a new witness during the second trial, John Ropak. Ropak lived on Summerhill Road, and he told the jury that he used to walk through the neighbourhood in the pre-dawn hours. Ropak had blonde hair, stood 5 feet 8 inches tall and weighed around 220 pounds. Ennis was 3 inches taller than Ropak, but he weighed a similar amount and had the same hair colour. When Ropak went on his early morning walks, he often wore an imitation members-only jacket with a black beret. He also sometimes carried a book bag. The defence had hoped this would cast doubt on the eyewitness testimony that placed Hennis at the Eastburn home. However, under cross-examination from the prosecution... Ropak said he could not specifically remember walking late at night on May 9th or early on May 10th. The defence then called on another new witness, Charlotte Kirby. Kirby was a newspaper carrier for the News and Observer of Raleigh. She told the jury that around 1.45am on May 10th, she had seen somebody in the yard of the East Burns home. She described the man as standing at around 5 feet 7 inches tall with dirty blonde hair, medium build, wearing blue jeans and a hat. She said he was also carrying a bag over his shoulder. The witness explained that after Hennis was arrested and she saw his photograph in the newspaper, Kirby told a friend that a terrible mistake had been made as the man she had seen that night outside the Eastburn home was not Hennis. Her friend had urged her to come forward, but she initially refused because she was scared. Charlotte Kirby had been receiving some threatening phone calls, and she feared they were somehow connected to what she had witnessed that night. Yet further disruption would halt the legal proceedings, when halfway through the trial, Judge Clark's wife became ill due to a heart condition. 
a substitute judge was ordered to preside over the proceedings, Judge B. Craig Ellis. In North Carolina, there is a state law that allows for substitute judges in emergency cases. While Timothy Hennis opted out of testifying on his own behalf during the first trial, he decided to take the stand during the second. Hennis told the jury he committed no crime. He detailed the night of May 7th when he went to the Eastburn home to pick up Dixie. Hennis said that he chatted with Catherine for a while at the kitchen table. She told him that she had three daughters who were in bed because she did not want them to be upset when Dixie was taken away. Assistant District Attorney John Dixon asked Hennis if he found Catherine Eastburn to be attractive. The defendant replied that he thought she was, quote, fairly attractive. The Assistant District Attorney then asked Hennis if he raped Catherine. He denied that he did. After Hennis dropped his wife off on May 9th to spend the weekend with her parents, he drove to see a former girlfriend, Nancy Mazer. Hennis said that Mazer was not dressed for company, so he left around 15 minutes later. However, Mazer had told the police Hennis stayed for around an hour and talked about marital problems and money issues. Under cross-examination, Assistant District Attorney Dixon suggested that Hennis had gone to his former girlfriend's apartment in anticipation of starting an affair. From the stand, Hennis became upset, abruptly stating, I don't know what you're talking about, sir. I just went to see a friend. Assistant District Attorney Dixon suggested that Hennis had felt spurned by Nancy Mazer, which contributed to him raping and murdering Catherine Eastburn. Hennis denied he killed anyone and explained why a burn barrel was found in his backyard. He was simply burning trash he had cleaned out of his home. He said he opted to burn it rather than, quote, have it look ugly in the front yard. Closing arguments were presented following witness testimony. Assistant District Attorney Calvin Collier reminded the jury that there was no sign of forced entry at the Eastburn home. He told the court that Catherine knew who she was letting into the property. She was letting in the man who had gotten their dog the assistant district attorney remarked. The second jury would deliberate for just two hours. However, unlike the first, they acquitted Timothy Hennis of all charges. One juror would reveal that the key to the acquittal was the prosecution's failure to link Hennis to the crime scene. After the verdicts were handed down, Timothy Hennis would speak to the media. It's been very hard to deal with, he said. I've missed my wife, and I miss my daughter, especially my daughter. Throughout the first trial and appeal, Hennis had been allowed to keep his rank of sergeant. 
following the acquittal, he was assigned to Fort Knox, Kansas, in the Personal Control Facility, an administrative unit that handles army personnel either in jail or absent from their unit. While he kept his rank, he was barred from re-enlisting in the army because of the civilian charges against him. Since the verdicts, however, the bar was removed and Hennis was re-enlisted in the army. His military records were revised to credit him with military service during the 844 days on death row. After re-enlistment, Hennis began working as a prisoner escort at Fort Knox. Life went on for those involved, but two decades after the horrific triple murders were committed, new evidence came to light that would tear open old wounds and call into question the very foundations of the justice system. This is the end of episode 27. To hear the concluding instalment of Double Jeopardy, please listen in two weeks. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson. Editing by Brad Maybe. Script editing, additional writing, illustrations and production direction by Rosanna Fitton. Narration, narration editing and production direction by Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening.